Imagine how it might feel to be diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, imagine you are into treatment and another separate lung tumor is found. How do you navigate that? Today's guest, Christine Elliott, is going to tell us how she harnessed the power of mindset to get through this time in her life. Hey there, I'm Lisa, host of Rising Strong Mental Health and Resilience. Stories like Christine's need to be told so that we can all find hope in the darkness. Now, let's get started. Christine and I met online, as many of us do, and quickly discovered we had a lot in common. I knew from the first conversation I wanted to have her on the Rising Strong podcast. Christine Elliott is a cancer survivor of both lung and breast cancer. Since recovering, Christine has gone on to work in mentorship, public speaking, educating, and writing, utilizing the lessons she learned from turning her pain into power. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you for having me, Lisa. So you've had quite a health journey. Can you take us mm-hmm. back in time a little bit and tell us about your journey and what that looked like? Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll take you back to 2020, uh, August of 2020. I was just living my life as a 30-year-old does. I was preparing to have babies. I was uh, working in my career doing all the things that you do. And lo and behold, one evening, I didn't realize my entire life was going to change. I looked across the room and I was laying in bed and I realized that there was a very large divot in my breast. And so of course I immediately felt for, for the lump, um, hoping to find nothing and instead finding, um, a very large gumball sized, um, uh, tumor. And I, I just knew Lisa right away, uh, that it, that it was cancer. I've never felt something quite so hard, um, quite so stationary, quite so, um, impressive to pull the tissue down in a way And so I just knew instantly what it was. My husband turned totally white and we both, um, we both just got struck. We we were paralyzed, um, with what was, what was going on here. And of course he tried to kind of say, oh, it's probably nothing. Let's just go to bed. And, uh, you know, and I stared up the ceiling and I, and all night and I just ran through my head my entire life, you know, everything that I had done, everything I had failed to do, everything I wanted to do. And, uh, and I just, I just pictured all of it. I didn't know what was coming for me, but, um, what I did know is that every movie, every podcast, every social media post that had to do with cancer was someone who was dying, someone who was sick, um, who was, you know, just that, that looked so ill and that was in a lot of pain. And so all I knew was that going forward, it was going to be hard. 
Wow. And I'm imagining that it's kind of like when you're dry, going to buy a new SUV and you're looking at red SUVs, that's all you see. When after that moment, is that all you were seeing and hearing and, and seeing in the news and everything was cancer? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's funny that you should say that. Yeah. This, um, part of the brain that allows us to see the things that we weren't seeing prior to this, um, really kicks in and everywhere I went, it was just cancer, breast cancer, cancer, breast cancer. Um, it was, it was surprising. And, uh, you know, the next morning, actually, I was able to get in with my doctor and get everything squared away, which I was, I was really pleased about. Um, after, after a night of, of, of course, no sleep, um, I woke up and, uh, got up and called, uh, the doctor's office and said, you know, I need to be in right away. And, and they heard my concern. And so they, they got me in that afternoon and, uh, the doctor, she, she felt for the lump and she said, well, I mean, it's fairly large, but I mean, chances are, you know, woman of your age, it's, it's more likely to be a cyst. So, so let's, let's just not panic. We'll book you some appointments and we'll go from there. And so I was, I was grateful to that doctor, um, for kind of soothing me a little bit. Um, and, uh, and so then I had a week to wait and that's when the red SUVs really showed up, you know, everything, everywhere I went, I just, uh, kept thinking about cancer. Absolutely. Now I've never been on that side of cancer. I've, I've worked in cancer care as a radiation therapist for going on 33 years, but I've never been in your shoes. Even when you were going through all the workup, did you think that there was only one outcome? Were you bombarded with that message? As you said, you heard people speaking who were dying who were writing books, who were dying. Was that your focus or were you starting to fight from that millisecond onward? That will not be me. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. In the beginning, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's not necessarily that you're even aware of either of those options. There's just this feeling of, I, I liken it to a deer in a headlights. The car is coming. And so you'd think that the deer would think, should I run or should I dive into the vehicle? But instead, they're just sort of stunned. And I would say that I that would be the best way to describe those first, you know, few weeks um, was that. I didn't know, I didn't know if I was going to die. I didn't know if I was going to live. I didn't know if this was cancer. I didn't know if this was nothing. And so there was just this feeling of deer in the headlights, you know, this stunned feeling. I remember writing my book, trying to recall a lot of those first weeks was like trying to remember a memory when I was five. You know, everything seemed muddled and um, confused, and I couldn't get the timeline right. Like, it was certainly an area of trauma, you know, and I think that um, anybody who's been through trauma, yourself included, 
might remember that memory in that way um, of that, that traumatic moment of like, I just, I don't know really where I was other than in shock. Wow. That is very descriptive, you know, very muddled, like you were trying to remember it as a five-year-old. Do you think it's part of our brains and our body's way of protecting us to not maybe remember those horrific things in such great detail? I do very much. Yeah. I'm there with you just based on my own experience. Now, my guess is, again, being an observer on the other side of all of this, but my guess is that this exploded into every crevice of your life. Can you tell us how this started to affect maybe your career, your marriage, whatever you're comfortable with sharing? Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Lisa. Being in the cancer industry, you know um, that what goes from uh, you know a question of what will we do here to this is this is your life now. Um, so to kind of fast forward a little bit, I I went to my mammogram a few weeks later, and when the radiologist came in, his first words were, "It's not benign." And so what was so unique about my situation is we didn't really have a period of time where we were just waiting for results. It was, there was so much clarity that it was cancer before the results came in that it became this really grueling process um, of waiting to find out what kind, really. Um And so after the radiologist told me that this is not benign, and I remember that moment very clearly, that one, that one's hyper clear, um, is, uh, is the doctors got me into blood tests and scans and doctor's appointments and meeting with the the um, surgeon and the nurse navigator and da, 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 and as it goes. And in that time, I was kind of like, so it's not benign. Is there any chance it's not cancer? And I remember the surgeon saying very clearly, today we're going to discuss your plan. It's that advanced. And I was like, oh. He's like, so we'll decide what we're going to do. And then when the results come back, we'll decide, we'll make some changes or we'll, we'll, you know, we'll make sure that it's the correct plan. And so I found this out during COVID when my husband was in the, in the truck outside of the hospital, not allowed in. And so I'm sitting with this surgeon and he's telling me, you know, you're going to lose your fertility, your opportunity to have children. You're going to lose um, for sure your nipple, if not both your breasts. It is cancer and you will have to do chemotherapy. And um, you, and, 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 you know, there's, there's a good chance you're going to be okay, but we don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. Talk about dropping a bomb. It was a lot. It was a lot. And um 
I just remember, you know, asking him, you know, before he said, I'll probably be okay. I said, like, how much time do I have? Because that's the only reference I had. Because, you know, going back when I was 26, 26, um, my stepdad of, uh, of 12 years, um, he was given a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. And within a very short time, he was told he had three months to live. And he, he left us in two and a half. And so, um, my reference of cancer was that you die. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I, I definitely at this point in the story to go back to your last question, um, at this point in the story, I was sure that I was going, going to pass away. I, I didn't, I didn't have any other reference other than that, you know, uh, in my own personal immediate life. And so, um, in this, in this time, I remember, um, staring up to the ceiling and as cheesy as it is thinking about the movie, um, PS, I love you and how he leaves all these wonderful little notes for her to move on. And I remember planning that, um, at that, at that stage in my journey, how I would help my husband to move on. Um, and so to zoom back in the office, um, when I found all this out, I said, I said to the doctor, I said, you have to let my husband in you like, I can't do this. And, and he was like, oh, of course, please. I didn't realize he was here. Um, cause the, the security guard stopped us at the door and said he had to leave. Um, and so we had the nurse call him and he came in and then we had to re-explain it all. And then he cried. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a very intense period of time for both of us. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. There's just, there's no words. There's no words. At what point in all of this did you then find out about lung cancer? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I guess I, I, I could talk for hours, couldn't I? Um, so about three weeks later, um, from the time of my first scan, I was given the diagnosis of stage 3C um, cancer. And what that is uh, for the listeners is it is, there's there's stages A, B, C, and, or sorry, now one, two, three, and four. And then there is, and then there is uh, A, B, and C within one, two, three, and four. And so stage 3C is minutes from stage four and stage four being what they call palliative cancer. And now that's changed. People are living from stage four, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. Um, again, my reference of stage four is that you die. And so uh, stage three C was pretty scary. Um, it was the mass itself was seven centimeters. So the hardened portion was, was, um, the gumball sized, but the surrounding inflamed tissue was seven centimeters. It was in my lymph nodes and it had, um, uh, uh, 
come in, it had moved into the skin. I'm not sure what that's called um, medically, perhaps you know, but it it had moved into the skin. So it was, it had left its region, which um, is where it gets a little scarier. Absolutely. And so um, all of this came to pass. And then the question became, is this stage four? So I had more tests to go into. But what was really interesting about this time is that when I found out, I finally got the diagnosis, that was around the time where my mindset started to shift from this deer in a headlight stage to this question of what am I going to do? Can I do this? And, you know, kind of past this, this weird murky stage of having to make a decision to run towards the vehicle or jump out of the way. And um, I recall very clearly there was, there was an afternoon and an evening where I was sitting on a boat because it was, um, it was summertime. I was sitting on, on a, a family member's boat on the water and there was such a unique feeling that came over me, Lisa, this feeling of complete calm and kind of hyper-awareness of where I was in the world. And that feeling was um, really invigorating and new for me after a, really a month of, of this, of this um, silent dread. And there was an eagle flying ahead. And that eagle um, always repre uh, represented my stepdad. When he passed, he had an eagle around his neck, and um, we kept that chain close in my family. And so the eagle was flying ahead, and I just thought, I don't know where the thought came from, but I've always, I am a believer in in the above, and you know that there that there is um, power with us, and there was a power in me that said that that I'm going to be okay. And that this is going to change my life in a positive way. And I don't really know where that came from, but I just remember my resolve being so deep in that moment. And of course, it fluctuated and flickered as, as time went forward. But, but my resolve being so deep in that moment that whatever this is, I'm going to beat it. I'm going to be okay. And it's going to change my life. Wow. That's so powerful. You know, you and I have spoken before and I am a big believer that there is more to life than this human existence and our loved ones don't leave. You know, it's a fact. Energy cannot um, be created or destroyed, right? It just changes form. So do you really think, exactly. I mean, I think that that was, that was your, your stepfather visiting you with a message of power. I mean, the, the symbolism of an eagle alone is so powerful. Um, do you think that his energy in that moment also was a big part of that strength that you felt? I do. I do very much. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever equated that until this very moment, but I do I do think that, you know, and, and I should say eagle, it was an eagle or a hawk. I'm not sure, but it was a grand bird nevertheless. And, um, and that, and I really believe that, that, that rod, when I see that, that, that 
his energy is there. And so I truly do believe that that energy um, reached out to me and gave me that that resolve. Um, I know that all of us have felt this. When you're really, really in tune with a conversation or you're really um, speaking wisely, and it almost seems otherworldly to somebody else, there's kind of this feeling, maybe not everybody's felt this, but I have, but there's kind of this feeling of like, almost like an energy or a tingle in the ends of your fingers and the ends of your toes when you're really in tune. And that was the feeling I felt. And so, you know, did I, did I touch energy? I believe I did. Yeah. In that moment. Hey, Rising Strong listeners. If you've been enjoying the inspiring interviews on the podcast, we'd love your support to help us reach more listeners and hopefully gain some sponsorship. To do that, please like, follow, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And here's a little extra incentive. Leave us a five-star review and you'll be entered to win some cool Rising Strong swag. Your support means the world to me. Now, back to the show. Was the lung cancer um, a metastasis of the breast cancer? Right. So, okay. Yes. So the lung cancers, this is new to the listeners. So, um, the, what happened was in these tests, we're trying to figure out what, um, if we're stage four and the scary part is, is that we find out that there is a, um, a pocket of suspicion in my lung directly behind my left breast. And so this doesn't look good. It looks like it could potentially be a metastasis for sure. My oncologist was very hopeful that it wasn't, that it could just be a a pocket of air or a deposit of fat or something along those lines. Um, It it does exist um, to go that way. And so he didn't really want to pursue biopsies and all these things while in the middle of chemotherapy, because we got started with chemotherapy shortly after. And so he he's asking the question of, you know, could this be nothing and whatever else? And I'm asking the question, could this be metastatic? And so now I'm going back to staring up at the ceiling and, and try, thinking of my husband and all the things. And so in that time, we finished the the chemotherapy. So I actually sat with this unknown diagnosis for three months. Um, and, And actually it was also, it was probably closer to five months before, from when we were kind of like, what is this to, we scanned it again and it seemed a little more sinister and, and what have you. And so at the end of, of my chemotherapy, that is when we decided to do the needle biopsy in when, when the chances of infection had gone way down after a month's time had passed. And so after all of that, that's when we checked to see what it was. The needle biopsy came back inconclusive. It was attached to a rib. We couldn't get to it. Then we did a PET scan. It came back inconclusive. It said it was too small um, and so that that there's no cancer present. And so my my oncologist was ready to leave it go. 
but I just did not feel comfortable with whatever this was, even though I believe it was 1.2 centimeters at the end of chemo, but it had gotten smaller during, during chemo, not much, but a bit. And that bothered me. And so when, um, I went for another scan, I was very, very firm. I said, we're doing another scan. Um, everybody thought it was useless. I went in for another scan. It had moved in one month's time from my first scan around the biopsy time to the next scan about, about a month later, it had moved to 1.9 in that time. So it was growing rapidly. And so I just said, nope, I, I do. I don't know what this is. You don't know what this is, but I'm not, I'm not sitting with this. And so to be honest, a bit reluctantly, um, my team referred me to a lung oncologist and to a lung surgeon. And actually the lung oncologist also thought it was nothing. And, but I just kept pushing and I got to the surgeon finally. And he said, you know what? I said, if you've pushed this hard, you're clearly concerned about it. Um, I can take it out if you'd like. It's probably nothing though. And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, you know, this is a no joke surgery. Are you sure you want this? And it could be nothing. And I said, yeah, I do. I was just, I was so, so like completely convinced that this needed to be taken out. Um, and so I had it removed. The surgery was as awful as he said. Um, and, uh, and then on the other side of it, I, um, about a month later got a call from the surgeon and he said, have you ever smoked? No. Why? He said, okay. Have you ever been around farm chemicals? No. Why? Can you please tell me? And, uh, he said, no, it was cancer. hundred percent. It was cancer. And I, my heart just dropped and I thought, oh my gosh, I have stage four cancer. I have palliative cancer. And, the, and then he, he interjected in my thoughts and he said, he said, what's interesting though, is that it's not breast cancer. It's another cancer, a separate, unattached cancer. And so I just can't believe it either. My staging came back as stage 2B lung cancer, completely independent of stage 3C breast cancer, directly behind my breast in the exact spot that a metastasis would go if it were to go, but it was in fact a separate cancer with no genetic tie, according to the um, the the medical um, studies that we have so far, um, with no reason for it to be there. It was a unique cancer. I believe they called it a menius cancer, so a mucus-based cancer. Um, and we didn't know what it was. It we don't know why it showed up. Nothing. After that, we had to do a bunch of other tests because menius cancers generally don't start in the lung, apparently. They start in the um, reproductive system of a woman. So then we had to check for stage four lung cancer or stage four menius cancers in other parts of my body. But we that came back clear. This story is long. <laughs> um, and uh, And that came back clear. And so for whatever reason, I have... I have gone through cancer two times at the same time, separately. But you know what's interesting, Lisa, is something hit me um, uh, right away, actually, when he told me that, which was 
if I wouldn't have had breast cancer in the advanced stage on the left side of my body, if I wouldn't have had it at the time that I had it, if I wouldn't have had the oncologist that I had or the or the mindset that I had that I was going to remove it, I would not have had removed lung cancer, which, as you know, is a much harder cancer to be cured from and to be caught. I wouldn't have caught it. And so I have decided that, you know, God, universe, source, placed my breast cancer on the left side of my body to save me from lung cancer. You know, and I, so that that is what I decided it was. I'm covered in goosebumps and I I I'm kind of with you there. I think that in a very 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 strange way that was a gift. That was yeah. a gift. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Now, I I'm well aware of what patients have to go through when they come to the cancer clinic for breast cancer and for lung cancer. I know the radiation end of things very well as a professional. Can you let our listeners know what that part of your journey was like? Absolutely. So, okay. So after the five months of chemo and the two surgeries, uh, we moved on to radiation. And, um, what was interesting was the radiation, um, although not directly impacting the, uh, the lung nodule or lung tumor at this point, we decided it was a tumor. Um, although it wasn't going to directly affect it, we just had to move the beam a little bit <laughs> and then it was, and then it would radiate both spots. So it was perfect. Um, but the radiation was, um, compared to the rest so easy, but it wasn't easy compared, compared to the rest. It was, it was so hopeful and, and exciting because I was coming to the end of this, this arduous journey. Um, I remember the radiation oncologist smiling at me every time I came in and I just kept thinking like, you know, 18 days until I'm not walking in the center anymore, you know, 17 days until, you know, and it would go on and on. Um, the radiation, it was, um, it was difficult because of how tired I began to become. It was difficult because of the wilting of my skin, um, how it began to, um, redden and then, and then kind of, um, disintegrate really uh, after a period of time it would start to flake and boil and 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 fall away um but you know I, I the radiation to me was just so much smoother than the rest um that uh, when I look back on the radiation stage of my journey um I look at it I look at it with a fair amount of of um happiness, um, which is not really what, uh, I, I'm sure radiation oncologists expect to hear <laughs> or technicians, but, uh, but I just, I just knew I was nearing the end of my journey. And I, so I was just so happy the whole time. <laughs> that's yeah. really, that's really good to hear for our listeners. Just a real quick overview. Chemotherapy is something that we call systemic treatment because it goes through your entire body, you know, depending on the, the drug used and so on. 
a lot of times it's IV drugs. So think of it, this it's essentially a poison, a very well-controlled poison that goes into your body, goes into your vein, or if you take it orally, it's digested. Whichever method, it is going to every cell in your body. And therefore, it can wreak so much havoc in a controlled way, in a way that is is of benefit to the patient. Otherwise, docs would never do it. But it is hard. There we're, we're seeing, you know, of course, we see hair loss in a lot of our patients. Not all. I mean, there's honestly, there's hundreds, if not thousands of different chemotherapy drugs. But in, in your case and what you would have received and, and the, the knowledge I do have, you know, it, and it affects your fingernails and your toenails and your tummy and, you know, vomiting and nausea and diarrhea. And it's awful, 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 awful. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful Correct. for patients that it exists because I mean, and our cure rates are higher than ever. I mean, you're, you're, you're one of them, you're a living statistic. Um, and then on the other hand, radiation therapy is very site specific. So the side effects that patients experience from radiation are all dependent on the body part, the area of the body, I guess is the better way to say it, that we are treating. So in Christine's case, we would have been treating all of the breast tissue. And given the stage that you've shared with me, I, I have not seen your, your case or anything, but just my knowledge that we would have treated your superclavicular nodes. Uh, your posterior nodes, um, and perhaps an intramammary chain. And then because your treatment would have been honestly quite unique to include the breast and the lung, there would have been some differences there. But the side effects would have all been um, just in those areas that I mentioned. So, But those two modalities work very, very well together, especially when we combine it with surgery. Um, but just a huge ordeal. Uh, how long? From diagnosis until the day that you quote unquote graduated treatment, is it about a year <laughs> or longer? It was about a year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah. Long and time. well, you know what? And as you know, um, it's it, the ringing the bell. I remember everybody mentioning, "Are you going to ring the bell?" And I was like, "What is this bell?" And then, and then eventually, I figured it out. Um, so the ringing of the bell is supposed to s signify the end of treatment. And what's interesting is that ringing, I rang the bell, which was a beautiful moment, by the way. Um, and then the next day I went in for an appointment <laughs> and the, and then uh, the, you know, next week I had another appointment and I, then I can, had to continue taking my Herceptin, which was uh, a targeted therapy, which was in the IV chair in the, in the um, chemotherapy ward. <clears throat> and I had to keep taking that for another, um, I think I had another four or five months left. And then we started an after chemo. So a, a post-treatment chemo to try to avoid recurrence. And um, then uh, I was put on five to 10 years of anti-hormone drugs. So what's interesting about graduating therapy is that I didn't realize it. And certainly people who come into the into cancer therapy don't generally realize it. But you're not really done. Um, you you want to be done. And I would say I, I would call that the graduation of my active treatment, um, which I really appreciated. Um, but you know, the the story doesn't end there. And 
part of me kind of wishes somebody would have told me because I think I would have kept this resilience that we get. Um, you know how when you're t- when you're driving home from a very long drive, that last 10 minutes is like, I just can't do this anymore. I think I need to stop the car and walk around four times and then I'll get back in. I can do that last 10 minutes. I kind of wish someone would have warned me that there was a longer than a year um, because I that last um, that last really kind of five more months followed by five to ten years. But that one's a little light. that one's easier. Um, but the but that last kind of five months felt like the ten minutes. Um, it was pretty. It was it was pretty hard to get through and begin new treatments that had new side effects and all of these sorts of things. My resilience was just gone at that point. That's yeah. interesting. So, and and as a as a professional in in oncology, you know, I think that that is something that that I need to take back to my group as well and to to really to really maybe be more dare I say transparent. I mean, we're never never are we trying to hold back information. What I maybe can see is that rather than bombarding patients at the beginning with, you know, this and then this and then this and then this and oh and by the way, we're going to give you tamoxifen or some kind of hormone treatment, like you say, five, 10 years, you know, perhaps that's the mindset, but very important. You're right. I, I, you know, it's almost like, am I running a marathon or am I running a 10 K? Because I really need to get my head around this, this, this plan. Like you say, you know, I think we can, when we can see that light at the end of the tunnel, right. We can, we can keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. But if we cross the some magic finish line, you know, and then somebody says, "Oh, guess what? There's another five k in your race." You know, you I would I would probably just stop running. Yeah, so that is <laughs> that is a really important thing to know. That uh, thank you so much for sharing that. So you've said that your mindset was like off the hop, like you know, I'm doing this, um, and then it 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 I'm going to say crashed maybe for a little bit there. How important has mindset been on your journey? Oh, I cannot say enough about mindset. I, I, I believe in, I believe so, so deeply. And again, this is my belief, but I believe so deeply in the power of the mind to heal the body. I just, I, everything that I went through feels like proof to me that the mind can heal the body. This, this conviction that I had that I was going to be okay. And the extraordinary result that we had in chemotherapy, I went from a seven centimeter tumor to 1.2 in five months. That's an extraordinary result. My, my oncologist was beyond happy. Um, you know, the, the conviction that I had to get through the surgeries and, and all of these things, I just remember people saying, if anyone can get through this, it's you. And, um, I held on to that, you know, I really did. And that was such a powerful statement for people to say to me, um, because it worked. And so mindset over and over again, yes, it helped me with side effects and my resiliency, but I really truly believe that it is part of my healing too, you know? Um, and there were times where 
I would have fair amount of side effects because everybody does. Um, but there, but there were times where they weren't quite as bad as, um, you know, say another person my age going through the same thing. And again, I attributed it to the way that I thought about chemotherapy, the visualizations that I, that I went through about it, you know, uh, being sparkles that would went through my body and would scrub away the tumor, but it would, it would go past my, um, past my, my fingers and toes, like the, you know, the blood of the lamb, the, the, the plague would pass, you know, and that was, that was the way that I envisioned this chemotherapy. I had very little trouble with neuropathy. I had very little trouble with uh, loss of fingernails or toenails. Um, I, I definitely had some pain, but, you know, um, in terms of all those things, they passed. And so, you know, I just really, I really believe in the power of the mind um, and its ability to heal the body, to mitigate side effects, to get through, to keep your mental state on board. People kept saying, I don't know how you're getting through this, you know, because something new would happen, you know, and over and over again, you know, you think you're getting a little bit ahead and then, oh, well, no, you might have stage four menius cancer now, you know, and it would just over and over again, it just felt like a lashing. But this ability to get through and keep my head on straight, I attribute to my years of, you know, researching the law of attraction and, uh, you know, law of rhythm and, and polarity and all of these laws to um, learning about God in a different context than, you know, maybe strict religion had taught me prior um, you know, energy and belief and, and the fact that everything means something, you know, all of those things culminated to be this powerful pack that I always had with me. And, um, you know, it, it truly changed the, the experience that I went through. And I think, I think the result too, I really believe that. It's so interesting to hear you speaking about your journey and and I don't know if you can see my eyes my brain is just going because I will also add to that as an observer as somebody who interacts with with cancer patients like yourself I see it every day from the time that I graduated a long time ago I have always <laughs> wanted to do some kind of formal study on mindset and perspective in our patients, because I see it. You see the patients that come through the door and pretty much, like you say, there's ups, there's downs, there's good days, there's bad days, but come through the door pretty much with the mindset, let's do this. I've got this. And then there's people that come through the door and they might have an incredibly highly curative cancer and not to minimize anybody's cancer journey. It sucks. All of cancer sucks. But as you said, you know, some cancers statistically are more likely to be uh, fatal, let's say, and some are more highly curable. And some people have given up before they walk in the door. And I'll tell you, as an observer in the setting, almost 100% of the time, the folks that have that fighter mindset, and they're they're finding the tools. They're they're doing the you know the work, the additional work. Uh, always do better, at least in the short term. 
always, 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 always. Like it is, mindset is just so incredible and so powerful. And I just don't even think we know the half of it. Thank you so much for sharing that piece so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Lisa. And thank you for sharing your professional perspective. I had a hunch that you would agree. Absolutely. 100%. Hands down. Like I say, I still think about that all the time. And when I eventually leave the career, um, I really, really hope that the problem is, is that we can't measure it, right? If we can't measure something, it's really hard to have a clinical trial or a study or anything of that nature. Um, And I'm quite sure that's what what has held people back uh, from doing something more formal. But I, uh, I would jump in with both feet if I had the opportunity to be involved. So you've taken all of your experience, all of your learning and all of this mindset and you've, you've become a wellness coach and, uh, and a mentor. Tell us about your work doing that. Absolutely. Well, it has morphed and changed over time. It started off, um, I want, I wanted to work with, um, with women before, um, some sort of diagnosis or disaster or, or whatever else to, to really kind of help, um, empower them ahead of time. Like I had been empowered prior, um, so that, you know, so that they have the faculties that I had if something, and and really when, because I think every human being goes through a dark night of the soul of some kind, you know, whether that be a dirty divorce or, or, you know, a loss of a child or, or a cancer diagnosis or, you know, something. I think that, I think that people go through something, you know, and, and, and there's something may be, you know, lighter. And I put bunny ears around that, you know, kind of quotations. It might be, you know, an easier something, or it might be a harder something, but whatever that, whatever that is to them, it's going to feel really hard. And so, um, my intention was to empower people before their dark night of the soul so that they could get through with vigor. And, um, I found that there was something missing. And so over time I began working specifically with cancer patients only and, um, helping them to get through the process and to get through the survivorship process, the harder part of my journey, as I call it. Um, you know, when it, when my mindset and resilience had gone down. And so then that was where I was working, but again, something was missing. And so, um, I moved and moved and moved until eventually I course corrected myself into the, where I am now, which is the pain to power, um, general sense. So if you have gone through some sort of pain and you would like to transmute that into power, I'm your gal. (laughs) And so it has moved and shifted there. Yeah. I love that so much. And I think what you said, I just want to circle back to, you know, I think, and I see this in the work that I do as well. Nobody wants to talk about grief. And honestly, what you went through, a huge part of that was grief too right? You lost your independence for a long time. You were grieving your health, this sense of quote unquote normal, whatever that is. Well, you know, another, another podcast for another day, um, is, is, you know, really the grief of, of, um, you know, what happens to a marriage in cancer and what happens to, um, what happens to the, um, 
the children that you'd like to have, you know, and, and the life that you'd like to have, you know, like there has been a lot of fallout as a result of everything that, that I went through. And so it, it definitely took time. It definitely took time there, um, for, you know, things to kind of start to equilibrium and they are just now. And my story started in 2020. You know, and and we're at the time of this this podcast. It's January of 2024, and that's not to say that it's all been bad. So, if someone's recently diagnosed, listening to this, thinking, "Oh my God, I can't do four years," it isn't. It it hasn't been four years. We've had a lot of great experiences, and like I said, my life is amazing now. I really believe that. Um, I wouldn't have changed my cancer for the world. Um, as awful as it as it was, I'm just life is just, it would have never been this good without this. Right. And so, um, things are really good, but that being said, there was a lot of fallout. There was a lot to work on as a result. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I know what I was going to say. Um, I think that whatever it is that we go through in life, like when things are good, our life is good. The last thing we want to think about is grief or, you know, building our tool belt so that one day when bad things happen, we're ready for it. Our brain doesn't want to go there. Right. So no. kudos to you. And I think that that is an, a, such an important piece is as humans, as we go along, we do need to learn about these things because you're right. Nobody gets through this life living on a sunny beach, eating chocolate cupcakes all day. Like, everybody's life, unfortunately, has some kind of crap, some yep. awful crap. And the more prepared we are, the better. So kudos to you for that piece. I think that that is so important. But, you know, if people are finding you after the fact, you know, to have somebody who's walked the walk, and who isn't just speaking in theories and what should you do and all this, but it's coming straight from your heart and from your experience. What a gift that is to other people. Now, tell us about your book. You've got a book coming out soon. Yes, I do. Yes. Um, I'm really excited about it. So my book is, it's, um, I would say it's a half and half. It's a memoir and a self-help book kind of com comboed together. So the first half of the book is, of course, the story of the diagnosis and everything like that, everything that I went through, um, all the way down to the ring the bell. And then there's a little bit of after stuff. Um, and then I move into all of the lessons that I learned from my experience. And so those final 10 chapters are really a... Uh, a huge glimpse, not even a glimpse, it's a look into my, uh, my structure that I bring my students through. And so, and so what that is, is the transformation that I can help people go through from the stage of, you know, what just happened to how do I turn this into my dharma, into this, you know, this life that I want to live? How do I make my life extraordinary? Um, it's that structure. So it's all the lessons that I learned, all the ways that I changed my life, all of the ways that, um, you know, I, I kind of fumbled through, um, and then went back and fixed it and fumbled through, went back and fixed it all put into structure of how you can implement the stories that I learned 
in order to come to the transformation that I came to. So almost your coaching in a book. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of people have asked me, you know, why would you give away the farm in a book? Um, you know, well, won't, won't people stop buying your course or your programs or, or, you know, your coaching. And the reason why is because number one, I want this value to be able to be purchasable. You know, not everybody can buy a course. Not everybody has the time. So I want to be able to bring this transformation into people's hands for, you know, $20 or less, number one. Um, and then the second is, is that I truly believe that if you can see um, my heart, my, 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 my purpose, which is me wanting to help you change your life around, that if you decide that you want a hand in what you've just learned, that you'll contact me. And if, if you don't, that's fine. At least I was able to help. And so that's, that was the resolve and the reason for kind of giving away the farm, if you will. Yeah, no, I'm behind you on that 100%. And I would echo that with the work that I've done as well. And, um, you know, working with you in person, personally on a, you know, whether it's course or what have you, that's, that brings just a different level to it, right? Beautiful, beautiful. So let's talk for a moment about resilience. That's what this podcast all is. And, and that is really what you exemplify is resilience. So what is your definition of resilience? Well, thank you. It's my definition of resilience for myself would be resilience to me is compassion. I used to believe that resilience was this ability to not fall down the dumps, to get depressed, to, you know, believe that you're going to die instead of having hope. I used to believe that resilience was somebody who was happy and um strong and you know i'm going to do this um and and all of those things but i would say resilience to me has changed so much um since everything and that is to say that resilience is falling down in the dumps it's believing you're going to die it's being depressed it's losing your losing your ability to smile and having the compassion to say that this is just all part of the process. Wow. I have not heard it explained quite that way. I love that. And how do you think you've become resilient? I think I know the answer, but I'd like to hear it from you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I would say that I have come to resilience through, through trial and error, through going through what I went through, um, through um, over and over again, um, having to, you know, being mad at myself for not being more resilient and then realizing that, uh, this isn't that, that shaming myself into submission isn't going to work. And so it just took time. And, uh, over time, my, my, my definition of resilience and my ability to be self-compassionate, um, came out of necessity. So true. So true. I was just doing a talk Last week, I think it was, and it was a, a talk about resilience. And I said, you know, unfortunately, we can't have resilience without the adversity first. Yeah, exactly. That's the fact of the matter. I know that some of our listeners are going to want to check out your stuff, your website, your social media. Can you give us a couple of places what people can go to find you? 
Certainly. On Instagram, I am live.free.wellness. On my website, it is www.livefreewellness.ca. Um, once you are in those two places, you can find just about everywhere else. I've got a Facebook page, YouTube, podcast. Everything is all there. Um, I usually tell people to head to at live.free.wellness on Instagram. That's usually the easiest place to find me. Awesome. Awesome. Christine, thank you for being here. Your insights are incredible and admirable. Be well and stay resilient, my friends. Catch you next time.